Thank you for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. I'm so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this will lift your heart and encourage you, set your eyes more fully on Jesus as we open God's word together. You can join us anytime in person or online in our live stream. You can find that at redemptionhilldc.org. If you're not in D.C., we encourage you to get involved in a local church where you live for the sake of encouragement and accountability in a local body, but we're also glad to have you join us and, and walk through this study with us. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill, you can do so at our website, again, redemptionhilldc.org. Church, if Jesus is worthy, say amen. 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 If, if, if God wills it to be so, um, I'm going to be in the pulpit over the next three weeks, leading us through some of the Psalms of Ascent. And if you've not been around church circles for a while, you're unfamiliar with uh, the literature of the Bible, let me clue you in real quick on what, what I mean by the Psalms of Ascent. The Psalms is that massive book in the Bible where basically if you do this, you're probably going to land in Psalms. It's 150 chapters or 150 songs slash prayers um, that are kind of grouped into different clusters or sections. And one of the sections is Psalm 120 through Psalm 134, and we call those the Psalms of Ascent. These 15 songs have been grouped together because they were sung by pilgrims as they made their way to Jerusalem from all over the known world to participate in the annual feasts. And so the temple was located on a hill. That's why even today it's referred to as the Temple Mount. So you literally have to ascend the steps and ascend the landscape to make your way up to worship. Now this ascent is alluded to in Psalm 122. I have it on the screen for you. In Psalm 122, verses 3 and 4, it says, Jerusalem is built as a city that is compact together, where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to the testimony of Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. This is teased all throughout. Like, and, and I want you to imagine with me for a minute. Um, these are songs that were sung by worshipers who had come from all over. Now imagine that you are walking along the the tops of the walls of the city, and you look off in the distance, and you see it, uh, this cloud of dust begin to emerge, and in the cloud of dust, this haze of figures coalescing into this giant amorphous mass moving as one on the road toward you. And as it draws near, you hear the rhythmic pounding of feet against the earth. And as they draw even closer, you begin to make out faces and you can see mouths moving, and you can hear voices of strangers who met on the road singing in unison the song of their ancestors, the song of praise to God. And they make their way through the gates, up toward the temple, the worship of God on their lips. Even people in the city are brought into this with them as all go to the house of God together to worship. That's what these Psalms of Ascent are. They are beautiful to read through and study. They are great for every season of life. Now, they're not psalms that necessarily further develop the narrative of Scripture, but they do illuminate the experiences of God's people inside the narrative of Scripture. Like inside of each one of these 15 chapters, we get to see the heart behind the history, which is always fun. So we're going to be learning one of these songs together today. 
I'm not going to sing it. That was ominous. We're going to be learning in Scripture one of these songs today as we study the first of the Psalm of Ascents, which is Psalm 120. So if you have a Bible, please turn to Psalm 120. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you. And if not, Scriptures will be provided on the screens. Before we get there, I'm going to give you some time to find it. This is a psalm of remembrance, of reminiscence. That is, it tells a story. The author is in this place of distress. He feels out of place with those around him. He's despondent and discouraged with where he's at and with what's going on around him. And in that place, he brings his distress and his deepest desires to the Lord and says, God, I need you to do something. The theme of this psalm, and, and even the title of my sermon this morning, is when we're in places that we don't want to be. It's a theme that has resonated with God's people throughout centuries and resonates with me and resonates with us today. So, Psalm 120, I'm going to be reading from the New King James Version. You may have a different version, that's okay, just read whatever Bible you're going to obey. I'm okay with that. But Psalm 120, beginning in verse 1, says this. In my distress, I cried to the Lord, and he heard me. Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, or what shall be done to you, you false tongue? Sharp arrows of the warrior with coals of the broom tree. Woe is me that I dwell in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. My soul has dwelt too long with one who hates peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. This is God's word. Father, as we make our way into your word today, would you grant us the, your grace to study and understand it, not just intellectually, but in the deepest parts of our hearts and souls. We ask that the words of this psalm would make their way into all of who we are, and it would stimulate our prayer life, ignite our faith, arouse our gratitude, because you, God, you hear us, and you are at work even when we are in places that we don't want to be, and we feel distressed and disoriented. So God, please speak. Anoint every syllable that will fall from my mouth for the praise and glory of Jesus. May we find healing in your word as we study it now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So this is going to be a bit unique. I'm not going to have any points today. I just want to slowly walk through the text with us. It'll be less of a preaching text and more of a teaching text because this is a particular psalm that's aimed at the people of God. And so if you're not here, not a Christian, I love that you're here. Um, and this is going to speak to you, but it's not directly aimed at you this morning. But one thing we all have in common is that we all have times of distress. So this is where we find that common ground. So I want to start in verse 1 with that word distress. The psalmist says, In my distress I cried to the Lord, and he heard me. I've underlined it there because it's, it's that word distress that defines the theme of the psalm and where we find the reference for today's sermon title, when we're in places we don't want to be. See, in Hebrew, that word distress literally translates as straits, that, that narrow passage of water that connects two larger bodies of water. So this is the psalmist's poetic way of saying, I came into these wide open waters thinking that everything was amazing. 
Everything was smooth sailing. But now my ship has been swept into these straits, and I'm in a tight spot. I'm stuck between where I thought I was and where I want to be, and I'm not seeing a way forward. God, I'm in a place I don't want to be. I'm in a place I didn't plan to be. That's pretty relatable, isn't it? Some of us are in that place right now, and we're wondering, God, why do you have me here? What am I supposed to do while I'm here? And we all respond differently in those times. I'm going to let you in on how I tend to respond, and you'll judge me harshly, and that's okay. When my life is swept into the straits of distress, the ship of my life, just I feel disoriented. I find myself in a place I don't want to be. All of a sudden, it's like I hear Carrie Underwood start singing, Jesus, take the wheel. And I hate that song. And it really annoys me because like I, in times like this, I don't want to give up the wheel. Like I want to be the one to get myself out of these straits. I want to be the one who solves my distress so that on the other side of this, I can go, man, look what I did. I got myself out of this. I'm determined no matter what to get through this without learning lessons. I just want to be out as fast as I can because although my deepest desire is to give the wheel to Jesus and submit to his leading and lordship in my life. That's not always my strongest desire. Sometimes my strongest desire is what I'm going to describe in just a second. My strongest desire is when Carrie Underwood stands on the bow of my ship singing, Jesus, take the wheel, I want to go push her overboard, say, ha, take that, Carrie, and then run toward Jesus and wrestle the wheel away from him and go, look at me, look at me, I'm the captain now. Like, that's the thing I want to do. That's so delusional. It's so selfish and silly, and fortunately, Scripture prescribes for us a better course of action than my delusional self-act of piracy that tries to push Jesus aside and say, I have this. I'm going to navigate by what I feel because what I feel is more important than what's actually real. Now, let let me clarify that. What you feel is real, but what you feel doesn't necessarily mean you're seeing things truly. When I'm in the straits of distress, all I have in mind is, God, you better get out of the way. I'm hurt. I feel crunched. I I feel discarded. I don't want to be here. And so like a wounded animal, I'll lash out. I'll try anything I can to get away from this corner, from these straits. But the psalmist gives us a better way forward. And there's something in me that just loves the fact that for generations and thousands of thousands of years, worshipers of God have sung these exact words while ascending the, te- the, the steps to the temple. They've cried out in one voice, in my distress, I cried out to the Lord and he heard me. I like that word cried. It means to invite God in. Inviting God into our distress to meet us where we're at. Church, that's a better way forward than relying on our own strength, our own intelligence, our own preferences, or what's worked for us in the past. Inviting God in is, is, is the way of humility because it's that honest acknowledgement of going, God, I, I can't do this. I need your help. It's the way of trusting Jesus 
trusting the words of Jesus, where, where we, we read in Scripture that his strength is made perfect in our weakness. So I would rather boast in my weakness because when I am weak, then he is strong. And it's also, also the way of the gospel. You see, friends, the, the gospel tells us that we don't have to have it all together to be loved or accepted by God. We don't have to have it all together to even be used by God. The gospel frees us from this pressure to be our own savior. It frees us from, from that delusional tyranny of self that, that tries to hide or conceal what's really going on or where we're really at. It frees us to be fallen people who then fall upon the mercy and grace of a sufficient savior. So we don't have to pretend. We don't have to try to do it in our own strength or apart from God. We cry out to him and invite God in. Now, I want to say something that might be strange for us because we live in a, a pretty densely packed city. We might read, cry out to God and go, yeah, I'm going to cry out with my heart. You can. But literally, this is like a guttural scream of crying out to God for help. When I was younger and I first started to like learn God's word for myself and study for myself, I was like 17 years old. And I came across this word in scriptures, and I saw that it was over and over, especially in the Psalms, about how you cry out to God. I just got my license, and so I thought, I'm going to do this, but I'm not going to do this where people can hear me. So I got in my car, and I drove like 45 minutes into the middle of nowhere. It was like dirt fields all around, and I got out and sat on the hood of my car, and I was just, I was an angsty teenager, so everything was bad for me, but I was just in this moment of like, God, I need you. And it was slowly like, God, I need you. God, I need you. And I just started to cry out to God. And it was one of the most like, cathartic and sweet things between me and Jesus because as I cried out to God and then tears came, peace came. Because I wasn't pretending and trying to hide from God how I really felt or what was really going on. I cried out to him and it was the weirdest thing. I opened my eyes and looked and there was like a jackrabbit staring right back at me. And I was thinking like, oh, don't judge me, man. Like it just, I realized we may not be had the ability in a city like this to go and cry out. But if you have a space where you can go and, and literally just cry out to God, those things are in the deepest part of your soul, those things that are causing you distress. The word of God, if, if it is true, it tells us that God meets us in our distress when we cry out to him. So the, the question would be, why don't we? Why don't we take God at his word and say, God, this is really what's going on. I need you to come in. I want you to, to be in my distress and meet me where I'm at. And this is where the psalmist finds himself. And as he goes on, he explains how and why inviting God into our distress is the better way. And it's found in those final three words that are uh, on the screen for you. He heard me. Man, your, your version might say he answered me. Both are accurate because with God, there's no difference between his hearing and his answering. When we cry out, God hears. And truly, church, like this should be mind-blowing for us this morning to, when we think about it, that God, the creator of everything, hears us. Not only does he hear our cries and our groanings in the middle of a field as an angsty 17-year-old, he even hears the longings of our hearts that haven't yet found their way to our mouths. 
He hears the yearnings inside of us that haven't fully developed in our souls. His ear is attuned to the deepest parts of who we are. That's what it means when it says, he heard me. God's hearing is woven all throughout Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament. And it's one of the themes that King David grabs on a lot in his Psalms. And in Psalm 34, he writes about it. In Psalm 34, 17 and 18, it says, The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. God does two things, obligates himself to do two things when he hears, to deliver and he draws near. Unprompted from human pressure, God obligates himself to hear our cries so that he can meet us in our mess and deliver us from our distress. God hears and he answers. God hears and he draws near. But here in Psalm 120, this word for hear is a bit different. It gives us yet another little detail about the way that God hears and responds when his people cry out to him. This word heard, it means to hear, or um, excuse me, it means to answer and to sing. God hears our cries, and his answer to us, over us, is a song. That might seem kind of weird. Until you read the words that are found in Zephaniah chapter 3. In Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 14 through 17, this is what we read, if I can find it. This is a scripture that is worth underlining in your Bibles, worth reading over yourself in difficult seasons. Zephaniah 3.14 says, Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy, the King of Israel. The Lord is in your midst, and you shall see disaster no more. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, do not fear. Do not fear, Zion. Let, your hands be, let not your hands be weak. For the Lord your God is in your midst. The Mighty One will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. God sings and rejoices over his people. Verse 15, it said, He sings over those for whom he has removed judgment. He sings over rebellious people who've been redeemed and restored by his grace. Verse 17 says that when, when we invite God in, that he, the mighty one, he answers us with his presence by coming and singing songs of his joy over us as he works his righteousness into our lives. It's that picture of a child who's hurt or in distress and they run to the arms of their mother or their father and there's no words that can be had, and so the, the mother or father will just pat their head or stroke their hair and sing a gentle song over their child to soothe their troubled soul. This is what God does when it says he hears us. When we cry out to God, he answers our cries with his presence. He soothes our souls with his song of salvation. He meets us in our dire straits to quiet our anxious hearts. I don't think it's accidental that this was the first psalm that would be sung as the pilgrims joined together on the road up to the temple. 
because the road is long and arduous. The road is wearying. And there are times where you feel so distressed and isolated and alone. So you sing this song by yourself, and then a pilgrim joins you on the road, and they know it, and they sing with you. And there's strength when voices are joined together. And then as you continue to walk forward and progress toward the city and toward the temple, more pilgrims join you, and they join in this song together. And what starts as a lonely moment of isolation begins to, to stir and ignite faith and trust in God who is able to deliver us because he hears us and he draws near. He hears us and he answers. He hears us and while we sing to him, he sings over us. This is why we cry out to the Lord in our distress. This is why this was the song on the lips of the people as they ascended the temple. So I've laid this on pretty thick. Psalmist is in a place of distress. He's talking about why he doesn't want to be here. And we really understand why when we get to verses two through five. He says, God, I'm in these straits of distress. I'm in a place I don't want to be. It's because of a certain type of people, the ethos of a certain place, and the harmful effect that it's having on my soul. So let's dive into that a bit. Verse two, he's beckoning God to save him from the influence of a certain type of people. He says, Lord, deliver me from lying lips and a deceitful tongue. Now, we don't know the the details of what these people were saying, but he characterizes their words as deceptive and dishonest. The message translates verse two as, they smile so sweetly, but they lie through their teeth. Whatever the details were of their words, the type of people being described here are toxic. And toxic people can be encountered anywhere. Inside and outside the church, it doesn't matter. But one thing that toxic people have in common is that they are a great source of distress, right? They they can be some of the main reasons why we don't want to be in the places that we're in. So it makes sense to me that the singer goes, God, God, if I could just get away from these people, then my soul would flourish. Now, this, this might seem kind of harsh, but here's why I believe identifying this form of toxicity, being aware of what's going on around us, matters. He calls out those who are speaking lies and deceit, who are dishonest and deceptive. Identifying this kind of toxicity matters because lies and deceit, falsehood and half-truths, all of that has a harmful effect on our souls. All of it has a harmful effect on those parts of us that relate to God or make us alive to God. The Bible says we are created in the image of a God who is truth. Mm, yeah, I'm going to go there. We are created in the image of a God who is truth, which means in order for our souls to flourish, we need God's word to penetrate our hearts and reign in our lives and in our communities. If God is the God of truth and he's created us in his image, we were meant to flourish when we walk in his truth. That's why Jesus says in John 17, 17, we are sanctified by the truth. The truth is God's word. And then in John 14, 6, Jesus announces himself as the way, the truth, and the life. So according to our Lord and Savior, if God's word is truth and the way of Jesus is the way of truth, then distorting God's word or living into something that is different than the way of Jesus is deceptively damning and toxic for our souls. 
It's not something that should be tolerated or celebrated. It's something to be cried out for and ask God to deliver us from. So this is the song of the people. And as the song progresses, it's not hard to sense the desperation, even the frustration of the psalmist that he brings to the Lord. He says, deliver me, God. I'm surrounded by dishonest and deceptive people. But then something strange happens in verses 3 and 4. All of a sudden, he stops talking to God, and he starts having a conversation with himself, where he's telling off these toxic people. Basically, he's doing something that, that I think, I'm sure most of us have done at, one, done at one time or another, the shower argument. You know what I'm talking about? It's where you're in the shower, and then all of a sudden, you start to imagine that scenario where it's the showdown between you and that person. And you were like rehearsing all of those witty, quick-witted things, those insults that'll cut, and you're just, you're just there, the water's hitting you, and the world continues to build. And you're coming up with all these like really clever things to say, and then all of a sudden people join in in your mind, and, and they're like, oh my gosh, look at this guy. And as soon as you drop the last line, everyone goes, oh, that was so good. And you, we all, and then we like, the shower ends, we're like, that's never going to happen. Not to brag, but I'm super good at winning those kind of arguments. And some of you guys are like, uh, you looked at me like, ah, oh, bro, we've, we, we don't do that. That's fine. <laughs> no judgment. If you don't do it, that's fine. This is literally kind of what, what, what's happening here. Literally, verse 3 and 4 are the psalmist going, what shall be given you? What shall be done with you, you false tongue? <laughs> and then he goes on and says a sentence that I don't even understand. Sharp arrows of the warrior's coal with the broom tree. Oh, like. Now, there's a lot of poetic symbolism in that. And what he's really saying when you talk, when we go to the roots of the broom tree, like this is where it takes the sting out of what he's doing for me, but it gives better biblical context. The roots of the broom tree, when you would cut them out, they, they made for excellent charcoal. So the fire would burn hotter and it would burn longer. So what he's saying is, I want you to be burned by your own sins. I want your sins to find you out so that you are burned by them. That seems kind of harsh. But here's honestly why I appreciate these kind of things in the Psalms, these kind of things in God's word. I wouldn't say God necessarily condones the heart of the psalmist right here. But I will say that God is okay knowing that that's in his heart and letting the psalmist bring it to him in worship and in sacrifice and in praise and going, God, this is what I want, but it's not about what I want. I want what you want more. See, God's not frightened by what's really in our hearts. God's not offended by what's really deeply inside of us that we can't talk about. C.S. Lewis said something great. He said, when we pray, we should pray what's in our hearts, not what we want to be in our hearts. A lot of us, not a lot of us, maybe some of us, come to God with a pretense. Some of us come to God and, and think, I need to sound flowery. I need to, to pray the things that I think he wants to hear. When in reality, God just wants our, our, our hearts in honest submission to him. When I, was a, when I was in youth group, we would do these things called poolside Bible studies, where it's just on a Friday night, you invite your friends, we come over, everybody swims, and then we do a small Bible study. We eat food. It's great. California, baby. That's what we do. There was one day we were doing that, and we had a baptism. So the pool was there. Let's just do this. Like, all these people were lining up to get baptized. And there was a guy who was older than me. I was like 14 at the time. 
And he was 18 going on 30. Like, this is a big dude. And he's in the water with the pastor, and everyone was given an option to say a small prayer. And this dude said one sentence. God, save me. I'm so effed up. But he did not say the phonetic version. He said the whole enchilada. And so all of us were like singing, like the guitar stopped. It was like a movie. <laughs> and I remember going like, can, can he be baptized now? <laughs> like, is that a thing? <laughs> and so the pastor like obviously started busting up laughing. He prayed over the guy. And I really appreciated what he did. He used that moment to tell us like, hey guys, listen, I need you to know that God cares about the kind of language that we use. And we don't want to use coarse language or, or, or foul language. But he prayed what was really in his heart and he brought it to the Lord. Do you think that God rejected that? And I love that he did that. He brought us to the, the scriptures and what scripture said and then he brought us back to the heart of God so that at a young age I went, man, I can't, I can't disagree with that. God, you are so good. This is kind of what the psalmist is doing here. In this imaginary argument where he's telling off these people, he's bringing the worst of his heart to God and he's going, God, I don't like that it's here, but in the distress, this is what's coming out. So take my complaints and let it be transformed into worship. Let it be transformed into a song where you, God, can do something great out of my foolishness. So he says, God, deliver me from these people, from this living in a, among a certain people. And then in verse 5, the song shifts and he, he goes, God, deliver me from living in a certain place. Woe is me that I dwell in Meshech and I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Now, this is a small little historical fact for those who enjoy history. For those who don't, I'm sorry. Meshech were, th those were people who, they were like warlike people who occupied the region between uh, the Black and Caspian Seas to the north of Israel. So it's like Turkey, Syria, modern day, far north of Israel. So you're like, how are you dwelling among the people of Meshech? And then when he mentions, I dwell among the tents of Kedar. The people of Kedar were the nomadic descendants of Ishmael. Now, as you know, going back all the way to Abraham and his um, impatience and his sin against God, where he and Sarah said, we're going to help God out with the promise I'm going to sleep with her maidservant, Hagar, and we're going to have a son. They had a son called Ishmael. And ever since Isaac, the son of promise, was born, there's been war between Ishmael and Isaac. There's always been antagonism of the descendants of Ishmael toward the descendants of Isaac. That's who the people of Kedar are. They were people who were heavily armed, nomadic, mobile people who were always ready to fight and rob those who crossed them. But they had settled further south into Arabia. So we're talking hundreds of miles north and south. So technically, he's like, yeah, I dwell in the midst of them. But we've got to remember that the psalmist, he uses poetic language to symbolize where his heart is at, to express what's, what he's really feeling and going on. So he invokes these names of the Meshech and Kedar to represent his surroundings that are antagonizing his own soul. He's likening where he lives and where he works to living among these people. Constant intimidation and threat. There's no freedom to go in wherever he wants to go because they are blocking the road. And, there, and he's lamenting that he lives in a place that continually war against his own soul, that, that try to rob him spiritually. 
And wherever he goes, because they're nomadic, they follow, and he can't get away from them. And so he goes, God, living here is like living among the Meshech and, and, and Kedar. I, I feel constricted. I feel constrained. My soul's distressed. The straits are closing in further and further. And we know how the psalm ends because we've read it. But it's at this point when I read God's word, even if I'm familiar with the passage, I like to just stop and imagine what I would do next, what I would write next. Knowing that I've been in similar situations, knowing that I feel that same distress, what would the next words of my song be? For the psalmist, he says, my soul has dwelt too long with one who hates peace. I'm for peace, but when I speak, they, they're for war. He bookends his psalm with another reference to the condition of his own soul. And in verse 6, you can almost sense the exasperation behind the pen in the words, too long. There's this desire for escape. My soul has dwelt too long in this place, too long with these people. God, I want something else. God, I want out. For the sake of my soul, deliver me from this place and from these people. And he gives his reasons why. They're pretty clear. He says, they hate peace. That is, they hate God's shalom, reigning and restoring. Now, we'll talk more about peace in just a second, but hate can mean anything on the scale from contempt to indifference. Being contemptuous or indifferent to God resetting what is broken. So that can look a couple of ways. It can look like not acknowledging anything that's broken and needs mending. Not acknowledging a need for God in certain areas. Wherever these people were along the spectrum, the reality is that ongoing contempt or indifference to God's peace and God's way is wearying to the soul of God's people. I want to say that again because I've had many conversations with many of you over the past five weeks. Ongoing indifference to the peace of God or the way of God is wearying to the soul. It's a form of violence against the soul. This is why he says, I'm for peace, but they, they're for war. And what does it mean to be for peace? It's a strange Strange way to put it. Could have said, I'm peaceful, but they're warlike. He says, I'm for peace. Well, remember, if peace is about God resetting what is broken, he says, I'm for God's restorative shalom. I'm for God rebuilding and restoring all that was torn down and violated by sin in the Garden of Eden. Every good act of his restorative, redemptive work, I'm for, and I want it, even if it comes at a cost to my own comfort. Psalm 122, if you turn to the right real quick in your Bibles, is another psalm of a sense that we will not get to in our short study, but it helps paint a picture of what being for peace looks like. Starting in verse 6, the psalm says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. Peace be within your walls, prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brethren and companions, I will now say, peace be within you. 
Because of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. So we get an inkling of what this means to be for peace. When he says, peace be within your walls, he's speaking of relational peace and harmony for God's people who dwell together. Being for peace means we're going to seek relational peace and harmony with God's people who dwell together. In verse 7, he says, may there be security in your towers. The towers were those places of protection that watched over and saw impending enemies try to infiltrate. So he prays protection over God's people that would extend to others. And then we read in verse 9, it seeks good. He says, I will seek your good. Being for peace means to seek to do God's good toward others. I say God's good because his good is different than our subjective good. My subjective good has limits and restraints, but God's doesn't. His goes further and further beyond where I ever would, and it's limitless, abounding. So he says, I'm for peace. I'm, I'm going to continue to do this good work. But God, even when I speak, they are for war. Now, interestingly, if you look at in the New Testament, James chapter 4 says that war and strife begins within the pleasure-seeking hearts of humanity who want their own way instead of God's way. So that's the contrast that's being shared here. He says, God, when I speak, I'm for your way. I want what you want, but they want their own way. They want their preference over your better way. They're indifferent to what you want because they want what they want. And so, God, that's incompatible. There's a war going on here. And it's causing violence to my own soul, harm to my own soul. I'm in a place of distress. God, this is what I'm asking you to do for me. I want to revisit that word in verse 2 that I intentionally skipped. The whole psalm hangs on this one word, and it's where we'll conclude our time together. It's the word deliver. He cries out to God, but he cries out and says, Lord, deliver me. His soul, although wounded, although distressed by toxic people in a toxic environment, cries out to God in faith, knowing that God is capable to bring deliverance and rescue. Now, in the Bible, deliverance has two prominent meanings. It can first mean to be removed from a situation. That's the common usage. That's probably what all of us are thinking about. The easiest example to illustrate this is the Exodus story. When God delivered his people out of Egyptian slavery and he brought them into the promised land. It was a deliverance where God heard their cry, that's Exodus chapter 2, met them in their distress through Moses and even with his presence, and then he led them with his presence, remember the pillar of cloud and fire, into liberation. So God heard, God met, and then he delivered. The same format that we see in Psalm 120, the same format we saw in Psalm 134, the same format that we see all throughout Scripture. God hears and answers. God hears and meets with his presence, and then he leads out. That's one form of deliverance. Another form of deliverance, what it also means is to strip off or remove something that's hindering. It's a deliverance that's predominantly seen in the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3. 
This is a story that has been in my heart for months now, and I didn't understand why until very recently. It's a story of three young men who were taken captive into Babylon. And they, along with the prophet Daniel, were loyal to God and served God and honored God, even in a foreign and a strange land. When we get to chapter 3, though, King Nebuchadnezzar, who's crazy, constructs this massive idol and demands and decrees that everyone, regardless of who you are, citizen or captive, in the court or peasant, that you would bow in worship of this idol. Well, in our story, these three young men, Shad, Mish, and Abe, refuse to bow in worship of the idol. And their refusal enrages the king. And so he binds them up and throws them into this massive furnace. And this is where I want to pick up our story real quick. This is where we see the second form of deliverance. It says, in these three men... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fell down, bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste and spoke to his counselors, Did we not cast three men into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Then Nebuchadnezzar commanded that they come out, and they did. These three men are literally in the midst of a fiery trial. But inside of that fiery trial, three things happen. Number one, Jesus meets them in the midst of the fiery trial. I know you might be like, bro, you're reading too much into this. Jesus meets them in the midst of the fiery trial. Secondly, the only thing that is burned away were those ropes that bound and hindered them. They were thrown in bound, hand and feet. They couldn't move. And then Nebuchadnezzar looks in because what catches his eye is, yes, there's four men, but they're all walking around inside of the furnace. The only things that were burned away in the midst of the fiery trial were the things that were binding them and hindering them from walking in freedom. And thirdly, they were not consumed, nor were their clothes even singed. Church. We are singing a psalm of deliverance that has been heavy on distress for a reason and a purpose because I don't want us to read this psalm and think it applies to others. This is for us. The psalms are our hymn book for generations. The deliverance that God brings us, it can be the kind of deliverance that draws us out, but what if the kind of deliverance that God has in mind for us is the kind where we stand in the fire a little bit longer so that he can burn away those things that are hindering us from being the fullest expression of who he created us to be? What if God has you in certain places around certain people right now because what he wants for you is to, before delivering you out, is to deliver you from what's hindering you. To put this simply, like, what if God's plan of deliverance differs from your idea of deliverance? Are you still going to trust him? Is he still good? Both forms of deliverance are good, and both are brought by only God alone. And the way we discover which form of deliverance God wants for us in our particular time of dis distress is by doing three things. First, we wait on God in prayer. 
We wait on God in prayer. Waiting is not inactivity. Waiting on God in prayer is probably the, the most holy and productive thing that we as God's people can do. Secondly, we read scripture and we let it speak to us where we're at. We pray, we read scripture. Third, we worship our way forward when we find our, ourselves in places that we don't want to be. Church, I'm convinced that this is the perfect psalm to stir our confidence in God when the road makes us weary. When people and places bring discouragements and cause distress or wounding to our souls. It's a psalm that, that, that grants us grace to acknowledge when we're in places that we don't want to be. So I can openly and honestly and freely say that, not worrying that people are going to judge me for it, but knowing that God hears where, that I'm acknowledging where I'm really at and going, God, but I don't want what I want. I want what you want. I want you to take the wheel of my ship and navigate these straits for me. The invitation, church, is to come to God in our distress and cry out for, for his deliverance. The invitation is to entrust our distress to God and in him find true deliverance. And it points us to Jesus, who's the ultimate deliverer, who alone brings complete deliverance in every season, whose grace is sufficient for every sin, every misstep, and whose mercy is new every morning. I'll close by saying this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, it says, In Christ, God has delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us, and in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. So in one verse, deliver is used in all three tenses, past, present, and future. I like that. I like that no matter what tense we try to put him in, Jesus is a complete deliverer. He was and is and always will be willing and able to deliver in the midst of our deepest distress. And this is why he is worthy of our worship. Even when we find our, ourselves in the straits of distress, even when we're around toxic people or a toxic environment, we find ourselves in places that we don't want to be. So if you're distressed right now, the invitation, the way forward is to follow in the footsteps of these ancient Jewish pilgrims and join together with each other on the road, united in one voice of worship to God, and draw near, knowing that as you sing to him, he sings over you. This is God's word to us today, and it's good. Let's pray. God, wherever we find ourselves, we... We simply just pray the words of Ephesians chapter 3 that you, out of your glory and your glorious riches, may strengthen us with power through the Holy Spirit in our inner beings. That Christ would dwell in our hearts being rooted and grounded in love and through faith. God, would you lift our countenance, our God and our deliverer? Would you take your word and sow it deep inside of our soul and, and draw us to you? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.